Chapter 3, The Messiah King, His Kingdom, and the Neglect of His Message A learned American theologian of the last century was intrigued by the extraordinary capacity of the religious to read the Bible with the conviction that its message must be wrapped in obscurity. Words which under normal circumstances allow no room for misunderstanding seem, in a biblical context, to provide complex problems of interpretation. One of the strangest things in the world is the manner in which some people read the Bible. It would almost seem as if they turned it upside down and read it backwards. Eyes they have, but they see not. They praise the Bible and hold it in holy regard and insist that everyone ought to have it, yet they look into it only as some recondite volume, which is a good textbook for preachers, but is quite beyond the reach of their understanding. Many seem to value the Bible as a sublime riddle book, full of mystic poetry and unsearchable wisdom, rather than as a plain piece of information and advice given by a father to his inexperienced and exposed children. Many who sit down to write commentaries on the Bible seem to be continually haunted with the idea that there's something recondite in every word, or that the real mind of the Spirit is not to be found in the plain import of the letter, but in some abstruse or mystic analogy which it is their business to dig after. And this author then goes on as follows. I hold that the Bible is a book for everybody, in which God speaks for the purpose of being understood by everybody, that its language is conformed to the ordinary uses of speech, that it is to be interpreted in the same common-sense way in which we would interpret the will of a deceased father or ascertain the meaning of a business letter. Its design is to instruct, and in the most familiar way, to express to men the mind and will of God. When Christ speaks of the Son of Man, he means the Son of Man, and not the Roman armies. When he speaks of his coming in the clouds of heaven, he means his coming in the clouds of heaven, and not the sailing of warships on the Mediterranean, or the marching of soldiers over the earth. Christ knew what he wished to say and how to say what he meant. And I feel myself bound to understand him to mean just what he says. That quotation was from J. A. Sice in his book The Last Times and the Great Commission of 1863. There is much wisdom in the learned doctor's approach to the scriptures. Though the Bible story is set in a culture far removed from ours, it is written to convey plain information about God's intention for the whole world. Popular notions about the meaning of Christianity would undergo a radical change if 
biblical statements were treated as language designed to be understood. If someone wants to state that a British prince will one day assume the throne of his mother, Queen Elizabeth, and reign as King of England, no one would misunderstand. When a divine emissary announces to Mary that her son Jesus is to inherit the throne of his ancestor David and reign over the people of Israel, as in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, this proposition is apparently fraught with difficulty. The need is felt for an army of learned expositors to assist with an interpretation. Royal language about Jesus means what it says. A large measure of Christian unity could be achieved overnight if Christians would read the divine messenger's words as plain statements of fact and accept them as true. To do so would be the essence of good Abrahamic faith, believing what God has said is going to happen, taking God at his word. Firstly, it would be understood that Jesus was born for royal office, and secondly, that David's throne must sometime be re-established so that Jesus can inherit it and become king of Israel. This he has plainly never done. If then the account of Jesus' life in Palestine was studied, it would be found that far from becoming king, he died as a common criminal at the hands of the Romans and his own people, the Jews. Acts 2, verse 23. Now Luke knew all this, for it had become history by the time he wrote his report of the angel's message to Mary, having gathered his information, as Luke says, in all probability by talking to Mary herself. Luke, however, saw nothing at all problematic in Jesus having died without becoming king. It was clear to him that the first part of Gabriel's message, given in advance of the conception of Jesus, had been amply fulfilled in the Saviour's birth at Bethlehem. There was therefore not the slightest reason to doubt that Jesus would also become king over Israel. That part of the announcement had simply not yet come to pass. That it would was not in doubt. The New Testament, echoing the Old, promises the accession of Jesus to the restored throne of David in Jerusalem at his future return to the earth. You'll find that in Acts 1 verse 6, Acts 3 verse 21, Acts 26 verse 6 and 7, and Revelation 11 verses 15 to 17. Note that the Messiah, quote, begins to reign in verse 17 of Revelation 11, at his return, the time of the resurrection of the dead, in Revelation 11, verse 18. Matthew 25, verse 31, similarly makes the beginning of the reign of Christ the time when he comes back in his glory. 
In this way, Jesus will also inherit the land promise of which he is the rightful heir according to the oath sworn to Abraham, as we read in Galatians 3 verse 19. An extraordinary confusion comes over the minds of some when confronted with the proposition that Jesus is to reign over the house of Israel. The ordinary churchgoer has no difficulty with the historical narrative stating that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, Matthew 2 verse 1. But the average Bible reader seems baffled by the prospect of his reign over Israel in the future. Non-acceptance of clear statements amounts to unbelief. Would this indicate that Christians have not yet fully become believers in the full range of blessings contained in the gospel? The reception of Luke's simple piece of information about the future career of Jesus would at once dramatically unite churchgoers under the banner of a brand new tenet, or rather one discovered afresh after years of neglect. It would bestow upon them a single hope and make them bearers of astonishingly good news to a perplexed world. They would be enabled to proclaim with absolute certainty something of stupendous significance for the future of mankind. They would once again be in possession of Jesus' own gospel message, the message about the coming kingdom of God, of which he is the ruler designate. See, for this Mark chapter 1 verse 1 and verses 14 and 15. By comparison with the tremendous implications of Jesus' forthcoming reign on the throne of David, arguments about episcopacy, communion, women priests, or the mode of baptism would rapidly pale into insignificance. The denominational barriers would come crashing down. Such a dramatic revolution would in fact mean only that the churches had come to accept Jesus as Messiah, as the one destined to rule the world from Jerusalem. Little do they seem to realize that their traditional creeds have almost no room for real conviction about his messiahship. Ecclesiastical tradition has robbed him of his throne and his land. It is one of those great ironies of history that Jesus' own people did not want him in the land which belonged to him as Messiah. John 1.11 states that Jesus came to his own domain and his own people did not receive him. But do 20th century Christians want to see him back in the land of Israel? the land which is his birthright, according to the land grant covenanted with Abraham and his seed. What has happened to render the simplest piece of information about Jesus obscure? How did the promise of his future kingship over Israel fade from the creed? Why do the classic creeds contain no word 
about the destiny of Jesus as ruler of the world in Jerusalem. I note that the creeds, in fact, say very little about the historical life of Jesus, except to mention his birth. They speak vaguely about what he's going to do in the future. The Nicene Creed comes closest to the language of the Bible when it speaks of, and I quote, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The latter phrase, however, should read the life of the age to come. As things stand, the great majority of churchgoers do not subscribe to the basic fact about Jesus which the angel Gabriel communicated to Mary and which the whole New Testament embraces as the central tenet of the faith that Jesus is destined for royal office as heir to David's throne. As we read in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Can the popular Jesus really be the Jesus of the Bible when the biblical description of him is so widely rejected? Would belief in a royal prince who has no hope of becoming king of England be belief in the prince who is heir apparent? No doubt some will protest that Jesus has already assumed his kingship on David's throne in heaven at his ascension. The suggestion would not be accepted by the New Testament church, for though they recognized that Jesus had been exalted after his resurrection to his father's throne in heaven, Acts 2 verse 33, nothing would have appeared more problematic than that David's throne had been permanently relocated in a realm beyond the skies. David's throne never had been and never would be anywhere else but in Jerusalem. Countless prophecies had taught them to look forward to Israel's national restoration under the Messiah and to a world renewed and reordered under his government. You'll find that in Jeremiah 3 verse 17, Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6, and Jeremiah 33 verse 15, and so on. It's clear beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus and the disciples, even after the resurrection, fully expected the kingdom to be re-established in Israel. This is only to say that they believed in the Hebrew Bible, which their teacher had said he came not to destroy. Matthew 5, verse 17. After the apostles had spent six weeks with their risen master, discussing the kingdom of God, they were eager to know if the time was then ripe for the expected national restoration of the messianic throne in Israel. They asked, and I quote, Lord, is it now the time for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1 verse 6. There was no hint at all that the message of all the prophets and the hopes of generations of pious Israelites had failed. Jesus did nothing at all to dash their hopes 
or correct their messianism. He merely stated that the time for the future restoration of the kingdom could not be known. You'll find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. I note that the ascension of Jesus was the guarantee of his future reign on earth. The coming of the Spirit was to be not many days hence, and this was definitely not the coming of the kingdom at a time undisclosed. As Luke later makes clear, Jesus, as Messiah designate, must be temporarily retained in heaven until the time comes for the national and universal restoration on which the entire biblical heritage was founded. The point received the highest apostolic confirmation when Peter, clarifying the divine plan, announced, I quote, Heaven must retain the Messiah until the time comes for the restoration of all things about which the prophets spoke. you find that in Acts chapter 3, verse 21. With these words, Peter summarized the whole sweep of God's plan for the world, projecting it into the messianic era which Jesus would introduce at his future return. Peter's audience would recall at once, among many other passages, the stirring words of the prophet Isaiah. I quote, Then I will restore Jerusalem's administrators as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. That's in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 26. And compare with that Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 25 and 26. Acts chapter 3, verse 21, is one of the great definitive statements of the New Testament revelation, a text which one might expect would receive equal time with John 3.16. We may say, therefore, with all confidence, that unless the throne of David is re-established under the Messiah, all the seers and prophets of the Old and New Testament will have turned out to be frauds and their message an empty fantasy. The apostles will be exposed as naive dreamers treading on a religious illusion. Jesus himself will have been revealed as an imposter Christianity must yet triumph in a renovated earth and with the returned Messiah as universal king or fail. There is no third alternative. The neglect of the message. If there's one element of biblical faith which churches often seem to avoid and theologians have obscured, it's the matter of the meaning to be attached to Jesus' favorite term, the kingdom of God, which is a thoroughly Hebrew messianic concept. To interpret any document intelligently, one must enter the thought world of those whom one is attempting to understand. If one blunders in the interpretation of key terms and expressions, a disastrous misunderstanding will result.
that such a breakdown in the transmission of the original faith due to a failure to reckon with the Jewishness of Jesus and his message about the kingdom, that this has happened cannot really be doubted. That this has happened was noted by an astute scholar of the Church of England, critical of trends which developed in the church from the second to the fourth century, he wrote, the church as a whole failed to understand the Old Testament and the Greek and Roman mind in turn came to dominate the church's outlook. From that disaster, the church has never recovered either in doctrine or in practice. That was a statement from H.L. Gouge, The Calling of the Jews, in his Essays on Judaism and Christianity, cited by H.J. Schoenfield in his book, The Politics of God. The root of the problem was similarly diagnosed by a Jewish historian, a translator of the New Testament, and sympathetic to Christianity. I quote, Christians would gravely delude themselves if they were to imagine that Jews on any major scale could subscribe to the tenets of the Christian religion, which owes so much to the legacy of polytheism. Because Christians have not become Israelites, but have remained essentially Gentiles, their spiritual inclinations are towards doctrines for which they have been prepared by inheritance from the pagan past. That's a statement by H.J. Schoenfield in his book, The Politics of God. This tragic departure of the church from the biblical message was noted also by an archbishop of the Anglican Church. He expressed his astonishment that the central fundamental concept of Jesus' gospel message, the kingdom, had been neglected for most of church history. I quote, Every generation finds something in the gospel which is of special importance to itself and seems to have been overlooked in the previous age or sometimes in all previous ages of the church. The great discovery of the age in which we live is the immense prominence given in the gospel to the kingdom of God. To us it is quite extraordinary that the gospel of the kingdom figures so little in the theology and religious writings of almost the entire period of Christian history. Certainly in the synoptic gospels, that's to say Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the kingdom of God gospel has a prominence that could hardly be increased. That's from William Temple in his book, Personal Religion and the Life of Fellowship, writing in 1926. It is almost impossible to exaggerate the significance of this observation of the Archbishop. A glance at the Gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry will reveal to every reader the simple fact that Jesus, the original herald of the Christian Gospel, 
was a preacher of the gospel of the kingdom of God. There can be absolutely no doubt about this. Can anyone question F.C. Grant's assessment of Jesus' purpose? I quote, It may be said that the teaching of Jesus concerning the kingdom of God represents his whole teaching. It is the main determinative subject of all his discourse. His ethics were ethics of the kingdom. His theology was theology of the kingdom. His teaching regarding himself cannot be understood apart from his interpretation of the kingdom of God. That's from an article, The Gospel of the Kingdom, in the journal Biblical World in 1917. It is equally clear that Jesus intended his own kingdom message, the gospel or good news, to be the chief concern of those who claim to represent him for the whole period of history until his promised return. Giving his marching orders to the church, Jesus commanded his followers to teach, quote, everything he had taught to those whom they discipled and initiated into the faith by baptism. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. The task of the faithful, as Jesus saw it, would be to preach, quote, this gospel about the kingdom in all the world. Matthew 24, verse 14. A sure sign of the continuing presence of the living Christ in his church must be a clarion call proclamation of the kingdom of God, just as Jesus preached it. To say, as Archbishop Temple does, that the kingdom of God, quote, has figured so little in the theology and religious writings of almost the entire period of Christian history is to admit only that the church has not done what Jesus told it to do. The church has been sailing under false colors. While it claims the name of Christ, it has not been busy faithfully relaying his saving gospel message about the kingdom to the world. How can it, when it admits to uncertainty about what the kingdom means? For example, Robert Morgan wrote, I quote, It's time someone called the bluff of those who think they know what exactly Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. That was from the journal Theology in 1979. A reappraisal of the church's task, including the frank admission that its gospel has lacked an essential messianic element, seems to be in order. It is a very simple matter to document the absence of the gospel of the kingdom of God from the church's preaching. Listen, for example, to the call of evangelists today to potential converts. Is the phrase gospel of the kingdom the main subject of the appeal for men and women to become Christians? Do pulpits the length and breadth of the land resound with clear expositions of what Jesus meant by the kingdom? 
Apparently, this is not the case. In his book, Church Growth and the Whole Gospel, the noted American church planter, Peter Wagner, agrees with George Eldon Ladd that, quote, modern scholarship is quite unanimous in the opinion that the kingdom of God was the central message of Jesus. Peter Wagner then reflects, and I quote, If this is true, and I know of no reason to dispute it, I cannot help wondering out loud why I haven't heard more about the kingdom of God in the 30 years I've been a Christian. I certainly have read about it enough in the Bible. Matthew mentions the kingdom 52 times, Mark 19 times, Luke 44 times, and John 4 times. But I honestly cannot remember any pastor whose ministry I've been under actually preaching a sermon on the kingdom of God. As I rummage through my own sermon barrel, I now realize that I myself have never preached a sermon on it. Where has the kingdom of God been? That's from Peter Wagner's book, Church Growth and the Whole Gospel, A Biblical Mandate, written in 1981. In an article entitled, quote, Preaching the Kingdom of God, the British expositor, Dr. I. Howard Marshall of the University of Aberdeen says, and I quote, During the past 16 years, I can recollect only two occasions on which I've heard sermons specifically devoted to the theme of the kingdom of God. I find this silence rather surprising because it is universally agreed by New Testament scholars that the central theme of the teaching of Jesus was the kingdom of God. Clearly then, one would expect the modern preacher who is trying to bring the message of Jesus to his congregation would have much to say about this subject. In fact, my experience has been the opposite, and I have rarely heard about it. That's from... Howard Marshall in the Expository Times in October of 1977. From a Roman Catholic writer comes the extraordinary admission that what he had learned in seminary did not include an explanation of Jesus' gospel message about the kingdom. I quote, As a teacher of New Testament literature, it early became obvious to me that the central theme of the preaching of the historical Jesus of Nazareth was the near approach of the kingdom of God. Yet to my amazement, this theme played hardly any role in the systematic theology I had been taught in the seminary. Upon further investigation, I realized that this theme had in many ways been largely ignored in the theology and spirituality and liturgy of the church in the past 2,000 years. And when not ignored, 
often distorted beyond recognition. How could this be? That's a quotation from B.T. Viviano in his book, The Kingdom of God in History, written in 1988. A further striking example reinforces our contention that for modern preachers, the gospel of the kingdom of God does not have anything like the comprehensive significance it had for Jesus and the whole New Testament church. While Jesus concentrated single-mindedly on the propagation of the gospel about the kingdom, modern preachers seem to steer clear of the phrase gospel of the kingdom. In an editorial in the journal Missiology, Arthur F. Glasser writes, Let me ask, when is the last time you heard a sermon on the kingdom of God? Frankly, I'd be hard put to recall ever having heard a solid exposition of this theme. How do we square this silence with the widely accepted fact that the kingdom of God dominated our Lord's thought and ministry? My experience is not uncommon. I've checked this out with my colleagues. Of course, they readily agree they've often heard sermons on bits and pieces of Jesus' parables. But as for a solid sermon on the nature of the kingdom of God as Jesus taught it, upon reflection, they too began to express surprise that it's the rare pastor who tackles the subject. One needs no special theological training to conclude that something is drastically askew when leading exponents of the faith in our day confess that Jesus' message is unfamiliar to them. At the level of popular evangelism, it's evident that the critical kingdom element is missing from presentations of the saving message. Billy Graham defines the gospel by dividing it into two main components. The first element is the death of Jesus, which is half the gospel. The other half, he says, is the resurrection of Jesus. That's from Roy Gustafson, What is the Gospel? from the Billy Graham Association. But this definition omits the basis of the gospel message. Jesus announced the kingdom of God as the heart of the gospel long before he said a word about his death and resurrection. Luke reports that the disciples went out proclaiming the gospel even before they had any knowledge of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You'll find that in Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. It follows, therefore, that there's more to the gospel than the death and resurrection of Christ, essential as these things are. Michael Green, an expert on evangelism, poses the question raised by the obvious difference between what we call evangelism and how Jesus defined it. At the Lausanne International Conference on World Evangelism in 1974, he asked, I quote, How much have you heard here about the kingdom of God? Not much. It's not our language. But it was Jesus' prime concern. 
That's cited by Tom Sine in his book, The Mustard Seed Conspiracy of 1981. How can it be that our language as 20th century Christians is not the language of Jesus himself? The situation demands an explanation. It should alert us to the fact that all is not well with our version of the Christian faith. We are not preaching the gospel as Jesus and his apostles preached it, as long as we omit mention of the substance of his entire message, the good news of the kingdom. Other scholars warn us that the all-embracing expression, kingdom of God, which is the axis around which everything Jesus taught revolves, is strange to churchgoers. Noting that Jesus opened his ministry by alerting the public to the approaching advent of the kingdom, without an explanatory comment about the meaning of the kingdom, Hugh Anderson observes, I quote, For Jesus' first hearers, as presumably for Mark's readers, kingdom of God was not the empty or nebulous term it often is today. The concept had a long history and an extensive background in the Old Testament, also in extra outside canonical works of the intertestamental period and in the rabbinical literature. That's a quotation from the New Century Bible Commentary on the Gospel of Mark. Anderson notes that, quote, the kingdom of God was without doubt at the heart of Jesus' historic message. Jesus' audience knew what he meant by the kingdom of God for the simple reason that they knew the Hebrew Bible, which was replete with glorious promises of peace and prosperity on earth to be enjoyed by those counted worthy to find a place in the kingdom of the Messiah. To Jesus' contemporaries, the kingdom of God was about as well known as the Statue of Liberty, the Declaration of Independence, or the Tower of London. One can imagine how confusing things would be if Americans and Englishmen today were unable to define clearly what is meant by these terms. What if the Second World War was a nebulous idea in the minds of historians, or Buckingham Palace a strange term to Londoners? When an idea is deeply rooted in the national identity of a people, it does not have to be defined every time it is mentioned. Such was the case with the kingdom of God. God's kingdom meant a new era of world government on earth destined to appear with the arrival in power of the promised king of the line of David, the Messiah, or anointed agent of the one God. A perceptive theologian, conscious of the need to define basic Christian ideas, within the framework provided by their original environment, has this to say about the kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching. The kingdom of God was basically a political idea, but political in the ancient religious sense, according to which politics was part of religion and expressed practically the doctrine of God's rule in the world. Kingdom of God meant the world empire of God, it was this idea which Jesus made his own as the vehicle of all his teaching.
which he identified with the purpose of God in his own time and adopted as the clue to his own prophetic or messianic mission. He was, or rather was to be, God's agent in the final establishment or re-establishment of the divine reign or kingdom in this world. The kingdom of God in the New Testament period was still the old prophetic dream of the complete and perfect realization here upon earth of the whole sovereignty of the one and only God. That's from the book by F.C. Grant, Ancient Judaism and the New Testament, written in 1959. The Kingdom of God, the key to unlock the Bible. It is impossible to explain the Christian religion without clarifying the meaning of the term Kingdom of God. With that concept, Jesus opened his preaching ministry, making it the foundation of all he taught. The kingdom of God was the master idea summing up the essence of all that the nation of Israel aspired to. It contained the two major elements of Israel's prophetic tradition, the burning desire for occupation of the land promised to Abraham and his descendants, together with the expectation that a divinely ordained ruler would ascend the restored throne of David. The first thing said about Jesus in Luke's account of the faith concerned the kingdom of God. God is going to, quote, give him, Jesus, the throne of his ancestor David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. Intelligent discipleship requires a grasp of that fundamental fact. It means also that we recognize that Jesus was a Jew whose whole teaching was deeply embedded in the Hebrew Scriptures to which he always appealed as a repository of divine truth. If we hope to understand Jesus' gospel we shall have to immerse ourselves in the Jewish environment which provides the background of our New Testament documents. Otherwise, we run the grave risk of creating, quote, another Jesus, the projection of our own ideas and ideals. Jesus himself began by summoning the people to repentance and belief in the gospel about the kingdom. You'll find that in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and Matthew 4, verse 23. At the Last Supper, he expressed his earnest longing to be reunited with the apostles in the future kingdom. Matthew 26, verse 29, Mark 14, verse 25, and Luke chapter 22, verses 16 and 18. Following his resurrection, Jesus immediately resumed his teaching by speaking of the kingdom of God for some six weeks. Acts 1 verse 3. The last question posed to him by the disciples before his ascension focused on the restoration of the kingdom, as in Acts 1 6. As a true disciple of the Messiah, 
Paul labored to proclaim the kingdom. We find him constantly at work, quote, speaking out boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That's in Acts 19, verse 8. Just as Jesus had declared the preaching of the kingdom to be the reason for his whole mission, Luke 4.43, Paul summarized his entire ministry to Jew and Gentile as a, quote, proclamation of the kingdom of God, Acts 20, verse 25. Luke ends his account in Acts where he began by speaking of the kingdom. He gives us a final glimpse of Paul, a prisoner in Rome, as he preached, quote, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus unhindered for two years. You'll find that in Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. The gospel of the kingdom of God is virtually a synonym for the Christian religion. It is obvious that Paul was no less a preacher of the kingdom than Jesus. The fact is that, quote, preaching about the kingdom of God sums up the ministry of Jesus, the apostles, the disciples, and Paul. That's a quotation from Robert O'Toole in his book, The Kingdom of God in 20th Century Interpretation, written in 1987. But can this truth about preaching the gospel of the kingdom be said of contemporary disciples? Jesus, the heir to the throne of David. The ministry of Jesus was informed by the Hebrew scriptures in which he had been schooled from early childhood. As a believer in the God of Israel and his divine revelation through the prophets, he shared the yearning of the Jewish people for the great day of liberation from foreign powers and the return of the Israelites to the promised land. It's a fatal mistake of interpretation to divorce New Testament kingdom language from its roots in the Old Testament and the history of Israel. The glory of David's and Solomon's rule provided the model for a much greater Israelite empire of the future. Since Jesus was believed to be the distinguished heir to that Davidic throne, Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, the following Old Testament texts, containing a direct or implied reference to the divine throne of David, build a bridge between Jesus' royal heritage and the Christian hope. I quote, To David and his descendants and his house, may there be peace from the Lord forever. 1 Kings 2, verse 23. Another quotation, The Lord has sworn to David to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. That's 2 Samuel 3, verses 9 and 10. And Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. 1 Kings 2, verse 12. The throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. And thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. 1 Kings 2, verses 45 and 46. Finally, the Lord lives, 
who has established me and set me on the throne of David, my father. The throne of David naturally means the ruling seat of the dynasty of David in Jerusalem. Of critical importance is the fact that the same throne may also be called the throne of the kingdom of the Lord, the latter phrase being equivalent to the kingdom of God. This means that the king of Israel, ruling in Jerusalem, is God's chosen ambassador on earth. He presides over the kingdom of God while administering the Davidic kingdom in Palestine. Thus it was that Israel looked forward to the expected Messiah, the ideal king of the line of David, who perfectly represents the one God. David's kingdom, which is also God's kingdom, is on earth and it is ultimately to be administered by God's commissioned agent, the ultimate sovereign of the royal house of David, ruling from Jerusalem. The term kingdom of God is rooted in the divine covenant made with David, the crucial link between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God is found in a number of key Old Testament passages. I quote, Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father, and he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. First Chronicles 29, verse 23. Another quotation. God has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. First Chronicles 28, verse 5. Another quotation, you are resisting the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the sons of David. Second Chronicles 13 verse 8. Another quotation, but I, that is God, will settle him, Solomon, in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. That's First Chronicles 17 verse 14. The kings of Israel were keenly aware of their position as God's rulers, and in 1 Kings 2.24, Solomon understands his reign to be by divine appointment. I quote, The Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father. When the Queen of Sheba visited the magnificent kingdom of Solomon, she also understood the meaning of the term kingdom of God. In her excitement over the exalted position of Solomon and the destiny of Israel in the divine plan, she declared, and I quote, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne as king for the Lord your God, because the Lord loved Israel, establishing them forever. Therefore he made you king over them, to do justice and righteousness. That's a quotation from 2 Chronicles 9, verse 8. The same statement as recorded in the parallel verse in 1 Kings, as to say 1 Kings 10, verse 9, speaks of the throne of Israel, confirming once again that the kingdom of Israel is also the kingdom of God. The same verse states also 
the ideal function of the king. It is, and I quote, to do justice and righteousness, which is exactly the ideal set before all followers of Christ, whose aim is to succeed where Adam failed and to regain the kingship lost by Adam. The kingdom of God, then, is an empire ruled by the king of Israel enthroned in Jerusalem. This definition will throw a flood of light on what Jesus meant by the good news about the kingdom of God. The Hebrew term, quote, kingdom of the Lord, reappears in Revelation 11, verse 15, where at the seventh trumpet blast, the power of present political states is to be transferred to the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. An examination of the work of Israel's prophets reveals their unshakable faith in a coming era of justice and peace for all mankind. The prophet Isaiah expressed God's vision and intention for Israel and for the world when he spoke of the message of one, and I quote, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, that's Jerusalem, your God reigns. That's from Isaiah 52, verse 7. And the Jewish paraphrase here is as follows. The kingdom of God will be revealed. Isaiah 40, verse 10 describes the event as God coming in might with his arm ruling for him and his reward with him. The New Testament interprets this kingdom activity as the task of the supreme representative of the one God, that is Jesus the Messiah. The coming kingdom of God was predicted in a number of key verses, as to say Exodus 15 verse 18, Isaiah 24 verse 23, Isaiah 31 verse 4, Isaiah 40 verse 9, and Isaiah 52 verse 7, along with Ezekiel 7 verse 7 and 10, Obadiah verse 21, and Micah 4 verses 7 and 8. The interpretative comment in the Jewish Targum or commentary is in every case the kingdom of God will be revealed. Amid scenes of tribulation and judgment, the kingdom of God would appear and the reign of the Lord will be established on earth in the person of the coming King of Israel, the Messiah. Such is the supreme hope of the prophets of Israel, whose message Jesus made his own as he summoned his countrymen to repentance in view of the great day. The gist of Jesus' gospel was that the threshold of the great future had been reached. The promises made to Israel's founding fathers were to be realized at last. Our task is now to become acquainted in greater detail with the divine arrangements which Israel claimed as her unique heritage and on which Jesus built his saving gospel message about the kingdom. The Christian gospel cannot be understood apart from its mooring in the Hebrew Bible. See, for example, Galatians 3, verse 8, Romans 1, 
verses 1 and 2, Romans 15, verse 8, and Romans 16, verses 25 and 26.